Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hello again, friends, and welcome on into episode 71 of The Sco Show. My name is Mark Schofield, back in the big chair for today, Wednesday, January 29th, 2020. Today's show, a mailbag show. Why? Well, the creative juices weren't flowing. And I I turn to you, the gentle listeners, the great denizens of Patriot Nation, for some ideas. And we got some good questions to get to. So we're going to roll through that in a minute before we do your usual cavalcade of reminders. Please do follow along with the hijinks at Mark Schofield on Twitter. Check out the work at places like InsideThePylon.com, Pro Football Weekly, Matt Waldman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio, and not one, and not two, but three. Yes, count on one, two, three SB Nation websites. Big Blue View, where I dropped a piece that may or may not interest you about how the Giants might have been Senior Bowl week winners. Why? Because the quarterbacks played well, which means quarterbacks will get pushed up the board, which also means Dave Gettleman could potentially be in position to trade back. That's all I'm saying. So you can check that out. You can check out the QB Sco Show. Me and Michael J. Kist at Bleeding Green Nation. And yes, right here at Pat's Pulpit. Also a good time for another reminder. Join the Slack channel. Why? Because it's fun. And also, this is a great time of year to do it. Because, let's face it, there's not a lot to talk about. And yes, we could spend the next six months or six weeks or however long it's going to take of our lives worried about Tom Brady. And we'll probably do that too, but we can do it together. I'm just saying. That will help. And and speaking of things to worry about, we got some news on Tuesday. News... Of a disappointing sort. Veteran offensive line coach Dante Skarnecchia decides it's time to retire anew. Stepping away from the game, both Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft releasing statements about the greatness that is Dante Skarnecchia. And before we get into rampant speculation about what this might mean, believe me, I've seen your gifts about the dynasty being over and the house of cards falling and cracks in the foundation, and I get it. I did want to relay one quick story from the great, the one and only Trevor Sikama at Tampa Bay Trey on the Twitter machine, part of the Draft Network, co-host of the Locked On NFL Draft podcast. When we were in the stands together watching Senior Bowl practice, first day, first practice, everybody's still bleary-eyed from getting up and watching weigh-ins. Trevor comes over and tells me a quick story, and he tweeted this out, but since he told it to me first, I'm sharing it here on the show. They said that he had just been talking and during Shrine Game Week to a offensive lineman who shall rename nameless. I'm not going to out that person. 
not going to spoil the person on the timeline who had been recently acquired by a team that was not New England. Again, not going to name the team. And when they brought him in after he was acquired and the coaching staff met with him and everything about the schemes that he was used to running and coaching pointers and tips and stuff like that, they basically looked at him and said, whatever Dante told you to do, just do that. Forget what we're telling you. Forget what our playbook says. Forget all that stuff. Whatever Scar told you to do, do that. That just tells you how important Dante Scarnecchia is as an offensive line coach. And there's another way to look at it. Justice Mosqueda, who many of you probably know at J.U. Mosk on the Twitter machine, now works for the XFL. Anyway, last December, he put together a piece over at Optimum Scouting to try to quantify how good offensive line coaches are. And the way he did it was he tracked two things, sack value and tackle for loss value for individual teams and individual seasons. And basically sack value was team sacks given up divided by team total pass plays minus sacks given up divided by NFL total pass plays multiplied by team total pass plays multiplied by one. Something like that. And he had a similar formula for tackles for a loss value. And basically, he treated tackles at the line as tackles for a loss with the idea being that if a back did not get momentum to push even a yard, there was likely to be penetration caused by an offensive lineman. And basically, he did some number stuff. And in terms of sack value and tackle for a loss value, you add those up, you get a total rank. Dante Skarnakia, 232.3. The next closest offensive line coach, Dan Rauschar from the New Orleans Saints with a total of 100.5. So Scar, by this metric, more than double the next closest offensive line coach. Now, you can quibble with the methodology and say, does this really do it? But it's a pretty good attempt at quantifying what an offensive line or offensive line coach might do. And it wasn't just for one season. He did it all the way back to 2004, which Justice, you know, he stated that the reason for that was that's when we entered a pass-friendly era. That's pretty impressive. That's just one season. That's an entire career in a sense. And as Justice wrote, you know, if you're trying to find the next Skarnecchia, maybe it's Rauschar, but Skarnecchia is in a class by himself. And so the Patriots are obviously going to miss him. Now, I know from some of you, this has caused you a bit of heart palpitations, a bit of concern that this might mean something about Tom Brady. Last time Scar retired, they won a Super Bowl with Tom Brady. So, look. Small sample size to be sure, but I'm trying to piece it all together. I'm trying to keep things intact the best we can. I'll just say that. I I get why people are concerned that this might mean something. I've had people in my DM saying things like, look, if you were going to get the band back together for one last year, one last run, why would Dante retire now? Who knows? Not going to speculate beyond the fact that Dante Scarnacchia has retired. 
Yeah. Anyway, so let's get into some questions, shall we? And we'll start with a question from Dylan Stoll, who is at Dylan, D-Y-L-A-N-J-S-T-O-L-L. And I thought this would be a great question to sort of jump off with. With the Patriots spending heavy at the running back position in the last two drafts, Michelle in the first and Harris in the third, what can be done to get more production from the backfield in 2020? Is it all about improving the offensive line? Yeah, you can see why I went here, because... When I first saw that question from Dylan, my thought was, right, well, yeah, improve the offensive line. And Scar, we trust. Everything's going to be fine. Fine and dandy. Everything's fine. Dog in cafe dot gif, right? Well, perhaps not. But Dylan, that is where I think the Patriots need to focus. One, solidify the offensive line, consistency, getting David. Andrew's back will be huge. The decision about Joe Tooney now looms massive. They're going to have to, I think, try to find a way to get him in and under the cap and resign. But numbers are going to be played with. I know the cap is a myth and a construct, but because I think to turn the keys over at the left guard spot to Hilde Froholt, for example, with the health status of David Andrews perhaps still up in the air, even if he gets a clean bill of health, it just seems shaky to me. You know, having Shaq Mason play better, having Marcus Cannon play better, year two, for example, and Isaiah Wynn, technically speaking, since he missed his rookie year, that will all help, I think, getting Joe Tooney back will be huge. I don't know if they'll do it. He might set the market. It's him and Brandon Sheriff. So, yeah. But I also think getting James Devlin back will be huge. We saw a market difference in Sony Michelle's ability to run the football this year, and it wasn't all the offensive line. You know, I think there is a bit of a lack of confidence on his part when he was running behind James Devlin. So I think that played a role as well. But obviously, it's a bit of a concern. And so, yeah, tough place to start, I know. Next question. And this comes to us from Aaron Williams, who is at swagdaddy underscore 11. Marlon Davidson impressed me a lot from what I could see from senior bowl practices. Is he someone that would be able to adapt to the scheme in New England, at least from what you saw? And Davidson certainly had a great week. I mean, you know, he got the lower body, the ankle injury, so he didn't really play much after the first day of practice or so. Now, he came in at 297, which was up from his listed weight of 278. I think he gets kicked inside. As he looks to transition to the National Football League, even though at Auburn, he was all over the defensive line for the Tigers last year. And what's interesting about Davidson is when he came in at that size, a 297, 33-inch arms, he saw a lot of action in the interior. And he actually told scouts, told media members when he was down in Mobile that teams want to see him move inside as a one-gap penetrating pass rusher, probably move over three technique. But he was also able to come off the edge as more of a 4-3 defensive end. He also seemed like he could play as a 5 technique, as a 2-gap run defender. That's flexibility. And we know how the Patriots like to do a bunch of different things up front, but the ability of somebody who can have the size to play as a 2-gap defensive end as a 5 technique when you're sort of in a 3-man front who can give you some juice in, uh, on the edges of a 4-man front or be an interior 3 technique 1-gap pass rusher, that's a lot of shoes that he can fill, a lot of roles that he can provide for you. And so Aaron, I, I think he'd be a tremendous fit 
and certainly be able to adapt to the scheme because the scheme could almost adapt to him. And so, you know, if they look to just use him sort of as an interior guy, add on a little bit of weight, depending on what happens with Guy and others, Danny Shelton, that could certainly be a landing spot for him. Now he had a great week. It's You know what that means. He might rise up boards, but Aaron, I think he'd be a fantastic fit in New England. That's just a taste of the questions we're going to get to. We're going to get to some more stuff up next, some quarterback evaluation stuff, a historical note for you, and more. That's ahead on episode 71 of The Sco Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Mark Schofield back with you now on episode 71 of the SCO Show. And we're going to continue with some Patriot-centric stuff right now. The great John Limarakis, who stood out to you at the Senior Bowl as a prototypical Patriot. You can find John on Twitter at John, J-O-H-N-A, Limarakis, L-I-M-B-E-R-A-K-I-S. And typically, when I'm at the Senior Bowl and I'm in the stands, the majority of time the assembled people around me look at me in unison when a player does something is when a slot receiver stands out. Everybody looks at me, seems to think, look, slot receiver, that's New England there. They're working towards that all slot receiver offense. Braxton Berrios a couple years ago, Hunter Renfro last year. I didn't get those kind of looks this year. Why? Because the Patriots were running an all slot receiver offense. So, yeah, wasn't seeing that. As far as guys that stood out to me that I think scream Patriot that were down in Mobile, I, I come back to Zach Bond. I know that he's in sort of that tweener mold. Mold. Where do you play him? You know, is he going to be an inside backer? He saw some reps at inside backer this week. He did some stuff on the outside, did some stuff on the edge. And again, it's that versatility idea, right? That ability to serve in different roles, different capacity for the New England Patriots. But I love the ability that he has to both cover in the passing game, even with wide receivers, and get after the pocket as an edge defender. And so Zach Bond sort of screams Patriot to me. I keep coming back to the idea of Stephen Sullivan, the LSU tight end. I think he seems like a Patriot to me. And then the safeties. I talked about some of these guys on Monday. I think Jeremy Chin certainly seems like he could be a Patriot. Kyle Duggar, the Lenore Ryan guy, small school kid, he seems like he could be a Patriot. I think, you know, Chin makes some sense. Jim Nagy, again, comparing him to Cam Chancellor. I think Bill Belichick would love to get his hands on a, a player like that. You know, especially when you think in today's NFL against teams that play with two safeties or three safeties, sometimes the safeties don't have the ability to play both roles, both down in the box and deep. And teams can take advantage of that by using motion and shift and to force that box-type safety to play a single high coverage scheme. Shin can do both. You know, it seems like Duggar could do both as well. Brooks, Antoine Brooks, the kid from Maryland, seems like he, all those guys could do both. 
And so I think those guys sort of scream Patriot to me. Question from John Vogel, at John, J-O-H-N-D-A-V-O-G-E-L. Got a chance to spend a ton of time with John down in Mobile at the practices. He was covering it. He does, John does some really good work from Draft Right, which you can follow on Twitter, at Draft Right, R-I-T-E. And John asked, is there a football player that you can liken to Hannibal Lecter? Hashtag, you don't have to answer this one to John. I won't. Not going to answer that one. Scary looking question, but I did want to give John a shout out. Give him a follow. Um, tell him I sent you. He does great work. Again, at John, D-A-V-O-G-E-L. And you can follow his website at Draft Right on Twitter. Pars and Gars at G-A-R-S-P-A-R-S-N. He's a gentle listener, a diehard Eagles fan, as he describes himself on Twitter. We love the Eagles fans here. How would you break down quarterback failures in the National Football League player misevaluation or organizational failure in percentages. And that's a tough one. And a lot of times it really sort of depends on a case-by-case basis. For example, you might say Paxton Lynch and Jamarcus Russell, those are player failures, period. I think you could say 100% both of those guys. Paxton Lynch wanted to play Madden, I get it. Wanted to play Skyrim, and I get it. Wanted to play Witcher 3, and I get it. You know, same thing with Jamarcus Russell. He seemed to just have different interests. Jake Locker, just different interests. You know, but I think if you sort of try to take a macro view of it, I think looking at it big picture and trying to say, okay, well, some of these guys were, it's all in the players. Some of these guys were, it's more a failure of the evaluation. I think in large part, it's probably half of these are organizational failure at one level or another. I think for the most part, scouts get it right when they evaluate these guys. Where they might get it wrong is in sort of the personality and scheme fit aspect of it. And I put that as more of an organizational failure than a a failure in the evaluation process. Because those are things that are big picture decisions. How does this guy mesh with our philosophy? How are we going to incorporate him into our offense? And so I think... For a lot of teams, when when they miss on a guy, when a guy just doesn't pan out at the quarterback position, it was a failure to get him into a situation and an environment that he's best suited in and where he can best be successful. You know, trying to think of a really good example of this. And Clayton Thorson from last year's draft, who, Gars and Pars, Pars and Gars, excuse me, at Gars Parson, trying to get the Twitter name right. Eagles drafted him, and Michael Kist and I on the QB Scotia basically said he was not going to be a good fit. Who might be a good fit, schematically and otherwise? Gardner Minshew. Gardner Minshew was on the board. They went with Clayton Thorson. He ended up not making the team out of training camp. And they convinced Josh McGowan to come out of retirement, dragged him out of the booth to be the backup to Carson Wentz, who was coming back from injury, and Nate Sudfeld, who suffered an injury in training camp in preseason. And I think that was an organizational failure because they probably had the evaluation right. They didn't get the scheme fit component of it right. And then they didn't do the things to sort of make sure he could fit into what they were doing. Now, some might say, look, if you don't get the scheme fit right, that's a miss on the evaluation. Maybe. But when I think of the evaluation process, I think of the traits. And then I think organizationally, like, how is he going to fit? And maybe I'm screwing up here. It's entirely possible. I am an idiot with just a microphone in front of his face. But I would say in large part, organizational failure is probably the bulk of failures in quarterbacks panning out in the National Football League. 
Next question comes to us from Why Shallow at Why Shallow Cross on Twitter. Other than wide receiver, what is the second deepest position in the draft? And I think we can all sort of agree that wide receiver is a very, very deep position in this draft class, right? Because you've got guys that, like Tyler Johnson, I keep coming back to that example, where he's not even at any of these games. But he might be a a very, very, very good talent. And so I think that's obviously a very, very, very deep position. There are two positions that I think sort of stand out. One is defensive line. And if you incorporate edges into that, I think defensive line is very deep. You know, you could look at, if you want to look at people's big boards or with the draft network or elsewhere, you know, there are some studs that might not get picked on day one. You know, say, for example, just on the interior defensive line, Derek Brown, Javon Kinlaw, Navelle Gallimore, you know, those are guys that might go day one. Raekwon Davis, Lakey Fotu from Utah. But, you know, you get outside of that, there's still guys that can play. All the way down to Darian Davis, or Darian Daniels, excuse me, who I talked about a little bit down at the Senior Bowl, who I think could be sort of a, you know, zero or one technique type guy. And then obviously you kick it outside to edge and there's some talent there as well. You know, we know the guys at the top, Chase Yon and Chase On from LSU, Terrell Lewis, the Alabama edge, Zach Bond in there, Curtis Weaver, Uche who had a fantastic week down at the Senior Bowl, Grenard who had a great week down at the Senior Bowl. Those are deep positions too. So defensive line, if you incorporate an interior and edge type guys, very deep up front. But I think there's a case to be made for the quarterback position, believe it or not. And we know the names at the top, the Tua's, the Burroughs, you know, Justin Herbert. But then you get into that next tier, Hertz, Fromm, Love, Eason, interesting guys, Anthony Gordon, another interesting guy. And then you get into some day three, the day three realm, Jake Lutton from Oregon State, intriguing player. James Morgan, the FIU kid who was at East West Shrine, interesting player. Nate Stanley, I know, I'm bringing up that name a lot, interesting player. So there's some depth at the quarterback position. Now, everybody always tends to focus on the names at the top, but we always see it, whether it's Gardner Minshew or Dak Prescott or some names that come out in the later rounds of the quarterback classes of the most recent drafts that make a name for themselves. And so I think quarterback is deep as well. Let's close it out with a bit of a historical reference. And for those of you that don't enjoy the historical references, well, I'll see you next week. But this comes to us to comes to us from Papa Rog at Rogimoto R A W G M O T O. No questions, but please share the story of General McAuliffe and his nuts to the German commander as we have recently passed the anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge. Now, if you know what that's referring to, fantastic! You'll come along for the ride. If you don't, it's a tremendous story, as we did just you know pass the anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge. And the nuts and bolts of it are this. 101st Airborne. Members of the 101st Airborne at Bastogne and the American lines were basically encircled. And on December 22nd, 1944, at about 11.30 in the morning, a group of four German soldiers waving two white flags approached the American lines using the Arlon Road from the direction of Ramofasi. 
south of Bastogne. And I know I butchered that. I'm sorry. The group consisted of two officers and two enlisted men. The senior officer was a Major Wagner of the 47th Panzer Corps. The junior officer, Lieutenant Helmuth Henke of the Panzer-like Operations Section, was carrying a briefcase under his arm. The two enlisted men had been selected from the 901st Panzer Grenadier Regiment. And these four men consented to being blindfolded and were taken to the American commanding officer. And that commanding officer was Brigadier General Anthony C. McAuliffe. And he was handed a letter. Now, the man that came in to awake General, Brigadier General McAuliffe, he told him, the Germans have sent some people forward to take our surrender. Moore recalled that Brigadier General McAuliffe, still half asleep, said nuts and started to climb out of his sleeping bag. Moore then went back out into the communication center where he briefed the rest of the division staff on the ongoing situation, including telling them of McCulloch's remark of nuts. Now, here's what the letter said that was delivered to the American commanders. To the USA commander of the encircled town of Bastogne, the fortune of war is changing. This time, the USA forces in and around Bastogne have been encircled by strong German armored units. More German armored units have crossed the river Orth, near Orthville, have taken marsh and reached Saint-Hubert by passing through Empereur said Tilly. Libermont is in German hands. There is only one possibility to save the encircled USA troops from total annihilation. That is the honorable surrender of the encircled town. In order to think it over, a term of two hours will be granted, beginning with the presentation of this note. If this proposal should be rejected, one German artillery corps and six heavy AA battalions are ready to annihilate the USA troops in and near Bastogne. The order for firing will be given immediately after this two hours term. All the serious civilian losses caused by this artillery fire would not correspond with the well-known American humanity, signed the German commander. Now, the division operations officer, Lieutenant Colonel Harry Kennard, recalled that McAuliffe initially asked they wanted to surrender. Moore told them, no, sir, they want us to surrender. McAuliffe rose, erupted in anger, which shocked those looking on. He took the paper, looked at it, and said, quote, us surrender on nuts, and dropped it on the floor. Now, the Americans didn't know how to respond. And then when McAuliffe wondered out loud, well, I don't know what to tell them as they were trying to figure out how to respond to the four German soldiers that were waiting in a response. Kennard said, what you said initially would be hard to beat. McAuliffe asked, what do you mean? Kennard said, sir, you said nuts. All members of the staff enthusiastically agreed. So McAuliffe wrote it down on a message pad and said, have it typed up. The reply was typed up, sent on a full sheet of paper. It read, December 22nd, 1944, to the German commander, Knotts, the American commander. Now they returned it to the Germans. The German party returned to their lines. They worried about what was going to happen. But what happened was the attack as foretold by the German letter never truly materialized. Several infantry and tank assaults were directed at the positions in the German Luftwaffe did attack the town, bombing it nightly. But the 101st Airborne held off the Germans until the 4th Armored Division arrived on December 26 to provide reinforcement. Nuts indeed. Massive shout out to Papa Rog for allowing me to talk a little history. That will do it for today. I will be back next Monday. Guess what, friends? Next Monday, it's our first Mock Draft Monday. How do we do this? Well, those of you that have been with me through the Locked On Patriots years, you'll probably know the routine. Those of you who haven't, do a mock draft, whether it's on FanSpeak 
or the draft network. Send me a screenshot of your mock drafts. I'll do one at the outset, second half of the show. I'll talk about some of your mock drafts that you sent in, give you some shout outs, some props for great picks and things like that. Get those in sometime before Sunday night so you don't so I don't miss it before I record the show. But our first mock draft Monday is coming next Monday. I know there's a some dumb game this weekend. I'm not going to talk about that. It's a Patriots show. We got to reload. Until next time, friends, I guess enjoy the Super Bowl. But more than anything else, keep on blessing that Patriots reign. Down in Foxville.